If we could please open up to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Let's read verse 1 here. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So now, as we begin chapter 7, it's important to, for us to know that from chapter 7 in the book of Daniel through the end of Daniel is a series of visions and dreams that Daniel received. If you remember, chapters 1 through 6 basically dealt with dreams given to kings and some historical background behind all that. And then now this is uh, basically Daniel Daniel's receiving visions. So the, 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 the book of Daniel is basically divided into two major sections, and now we're starting the second major sections and, section. So basically, chapters 7 through 12 is a series of prophetic visions given to Daniel by God. And these prophetic visions deal with the end of the world, basically the culmination of all the world's uh, kingdoms and events that are going to culminate in the return of Jesus Christ to this earth to set up his eternal kingdom. That's what's going on. And, and if you haven't noticed already, Daniel is very repetitive. And what's happening here is that as you go through these last seven, uh, these last few chapters here from chapter seven on, you're going to see a lot of repetition. But the repetition is when he comes back to something, he's going to re-explain something, and then he's going to go into one in depth on one, something particular about that that we need to know. And then he'll do the same thing. He'll, he'll even dial in a little bit more on some more things and dial in even deeper. And so you'll get a view of the Antichrist more. You'll get a view of, um, of basically Greece and Persia in chapter 8 and so on and so forth. And so uh, the, this is the way the, the Hebrews teach. They don't just say it all at once and you're done. They go and they come back and they repeat. And they go and they come back and repeat with something new. And they go and come back and repeat with something new. And there's an idiom, repetition teaches the donkey. And so I'm just saying I'm a donkey, I'm learning, and may the Lord teach us. Amen? But chapter 7 is the first of a series of visions that Daniel gets describing those dreams. And as I mentioned, up until this point, all the visions that Daniel's written down in chapters 1 through 6 have been given to the pagan Babylonian kings, mainly Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar, which we just checked out in chapter 5. But you remember them, right? In chapter 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of this image, which we assume is a man, but it's, it's a man. It has a head of gold and arms of silver and a chest of silver and a midsection of bronze and legs of iron and then feet mixed with iron and clay. And remember that it was Daniel who had the ability to um, interpret that dream, that those were actually nations and kingdoms. And then ultimately there was this stone that was cut out uh, that, well, well, that was not cut out by human hands and came and crashed at the foot of that in that dream and everything came tumbling down and that stone became a mountain. Remember all that? Yeah, so that's basically one of the dreams. Uh, actually, that's symbolizing the kingdom of God, crushing all the kingdoms of man, this return of Christ. Then in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream. Remember, there's a giant tree and that was a symbolic of him and his kingdom. Uh, you can't really separate a king from his kingdom. And uh, basically, the, the, the king was cut down for a period of seven years, and he was given. He became like an animal, and he had his his mind was lost. And he was out there like eating grass or whatever he's doing, foraging and all that kind of stuff. And then after seven years, God restored him. 
And that was what it actually happened to him. Because of his pride, he fell. And, and after that, God restored him, just proving that God is absolutely sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. And that was his point. And then we remember the writing on the wall. Chapter chapter 5, basically, Belshazzar, who is the last king of Babylon, uh, what happened to him is he basically was profaning God in his celebrations, although Babylon was surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. And they started grabbing all the uh, cups and and, and utensils and everything that was used in the temple uh, in Jerusalem that they had captured. Nebuchadnezzar had captured almost 70 years earlier. And he brought it in and started using it to drink and to worship their gods and all that kind of stuff. And the handwriting was written on the wall. And so it was a vision that was given to them and it basically said, your, your number's up, you're dead. And that's exactly what happened that night. And so here's these, these series of visions and dreams that God had given to pagan kings in the first six chapters. There's a lot more in there, obviously. But now we're in chapter 5, all those dreams, uh, and chapter 7, all those were pagan kings from their perspective, but now we're going to hear from God's man, from Daniel, from his perspective. So chapter 7, we shift from visions of kings to visions that given to Daniel, and Daniel is going to write them. And verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us the vision given to Daniel took place in the first year of King Belshazzar. How many of you remember Belshazzar died in chapter 5? So that's why this is a kind of a new thing. Daniel's going to go back, and he's going to go back a little bit. He, we're back in history a little bit, 22 years after um, King Nebuchadnezzar died. Belshazzar's there in his first year. Daniel receives this vision. And then we're going to see he's going to start each chapter by saying what king is around when he receives whatever vision. So we'll move forward from there. Um, if that's a little bit complicated, let me know. But basically, verse 1 tells us that Daniel saw the dream in vision as he lay on his bed. And so God's giving Daniel these visions and dreams while he's sleeping. And then he wrote the sum of it for us here in verse 2. And so like Daniel does, he'll tell us the dream and then he'll tell us the interpretation. We're just going to get to the dream part today. And then what's going to happen is back in, in, when we get out of the Christmas season, because um, we're going to, in December basically, we're going we're gonna to pause for Daniel and we're going to focus on some more Christmassy focused type stuff, uh, focusing on the person of Christ, which will be nice for us. You know, I've taught through Revelation through December before. It's fun, but I mean, uh, you know, I think it'd be a good shift for us considering everything that's gone on this year. We'll pick it back up in, in January in the second half of chapter 7. But starting in verse 2, Daniel gives us this dream, this vision he had. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision... By night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. And the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the, the mind of a man was given to it, and behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise and devour much flesh. Verse 6, And after this I looked, and behold, another, uh, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Verse 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns 
And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, this is the first of the prophetic dreams that we hear have from Daniel here. Now, just reading that, many of you who we've already gone through Daniel kind of seen, see a lot of parallels to what's already happened. If you've been following along, basically, you instantly realize that this kind of mimics King Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. It's a, it's a repetition of chapter 2, basically. Um, but instead of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which was a vision of a man made of different metals, a head of gold, arms of silver, chest of, or, or midsection of, of bronze and legs of iron, feet mixed with iron and clay. This vision is four different beasts. We know that those represented four different kingdoms. Well, this represents four different kingdoms as well. These beasts actually represent four different kingdoms. And it explains that later in the chapter. But basically, this is, this is a parallel. We have these, the uh, vision from man's perspective, which is this which I find kind of interesting. I like what John Mark MacArthur said about uh, Babylon, about King Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the kingdoms of world and the rulers of men in his vision. He, he said that uh, pagan king, from a pagan king's perspective, the kingdoms of man and their leaders look beautiful with shining metals and all that stuff. But from God's perspective, they're savage beasts. And that's really what it is. From God's perspective, they're monsters. And, and, and if you look at this, it says that each of these animals is like a certain animal. It doesn't say it is. It says it's like it because it's deformed in some way. There's some kind of deformity going on. And so basically, you've got to think like Godzilla. Something's coming out of the ocean, and it's not pretty. And that's the idea here is that we're, we're using this imagery of these different animals to represent these kingdoms that come out of humanity. And that's what Daniel's relaying to us here. The same idea is in chapter 2, but now it's represented by these four beasts coming out from the great sea. And the great sea probably just literally means the Mediterranean, but what it means in Scripture as you look at it from here in Revelation and other places, the sea of humanity, the sea of people. Out of humanity comes these four kings, these four kingdoms. And that's what it's talking about in verse 1. Four beasts, four kings, four kingdoms that rise out from among mankind that will come one after another, then after them comes the kingdom of God. That's what's going on. And Daniel describes each one of these again for us. Look at the first one, verse 4. It says, was like what? Like a lion. Like a lion. And it had eagle's wings. The lion here in chapter 7 is the Babylonian empire and, and would correspond to the head of gold back in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. It's interesting that when archaeologists, they dug up the old remains of, of, of Babylon, they went to the palace and they kind of started digging around. They found the gates and on either side are these lions that were carved or images or some kind of thing like that there. And it really was just a symbol of ancient Babylon. And so you have Babylon as this first... Um, as this first picture. But what it says about it is that in verse 4, it tells us that it was lifted up to stand on its feet and was given the mind of a man. Uh, well, the wings got, uh, sorry, they had eagle's wings, which represents speed. That's what it means in Scripture. It means speed. He had wings of eagles, very 
uh, it was very fast, which probably meant that Babylon was very quick in conquering everything around it. But those wings were plucked off, verse 4 tells us, right? And, and then what it says here is that it was lifted up to stand on its feet and was given the mind of a man. And so what, what do we remember back from chapter 2? What happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? He was like a wild animal. And then he was actually resurrected after a while and he was given the mind of a man and put in his proper place. It was interesting. So this represents basically uh, the kingdom of Babylon, how it was restored. And so the first beast, the lion, is the kingdom of Babylon. I'm not going to go into too much depth because we keep repeating everything. And uh, I want to save some for later. But the second beast in verse 6 was a bear. And that was raised up on one side and has three ribs in its mouth and was told to go and devour much flesh. And this is the Medo-Persian Empire. We know this from history. That's the next empire that came in, crushed Babylon, uh, tore it to pieces, and basically was raised up. Now, this is interesting is that the bear is described as being deformed, lifted up on one side, having one side overdeveloped than the other. And obviously, we know from history that the Persian Empire had the greater influence in the Medo-Persian Empire, much more so than, than the Medes. And so this, this bear uh, had three ribs in its mouth, and this could just mean they just destroyed everything in their path, which they did. They were ferocious, Artaxerxes and all those different uh, rulers that came through. But many believe it's just the three major countries that they devoured in the, in the region, which were the Babylonians, the Egyptians, and the Lydians. And so the second beast is the bears, the Medo-Persian Empire. But in verse 6, uh, a third beast comes out of the sea, uh, a beast uh, like a leopard with four wings and four heads. Anybody guess what this one is? Yeah, it's the Greeks. It's the Greek empire, basically. It's the Greeks. This, is the, this corresponds to the midsection of bronze. And there's a point to all this, everybody. We're going to get to it. But the, the point is that there's a, a midsection of bronze, which was the next empire. You have the Babylonian empire. You have the Medo-Persian empire. Then you had the Greek empire. And the leopard was quick. It had four wings. It was super quick. And if anybody has read history about Alexander the Great, that guy was terrifyingly quick. It was the blitzkrieg of, of Greek time. I mean, he just went through and took out everything, all the way from India to the Mediterranean Sea, and then all the way down and up. I mean, the guy was, it was quite a conquest. Actually, he, he died at the age of 33 in, in Babylon, and he was pretty depressed because he had nowhere places to conquer. So he went through midlife crisis really early. But what we, is interesting about Alexander the Great is that after he died, his kingdom was too big to handle. They divided it up into four different sections, and it was given to the four generals. And so basically you have a leopard with four wings that was very fast and four heads. It's pretty amazing how, and you got to keep in mind, none of this has happened yet except for the Babylonian kingdom, and actually that hadn't even fallen yet. And so Daniel's receiving this vision and this dream about what is coming. And us looking back, we go, oh, yeah, that happened. And that is why so many people look back and they go, it is so accurate, it had to be written after the fact, which is not true. It's amazing with what accuracy. And by the way, in chapter 8, it's going to revisit both um, the Medo-Persian and the Greeks. And so we'll talk about Alexander's conquest and all this type of stuff a little bit more. 
But his kingdom was divided into four parts, and those generals took over. And so you have this leopard with four heads, kind of freaky. So each of these are a little bit deformed. So Greece is that leopard. And then in verses 7 through 8, we see this, the fourth beast. Verse 7 says, verses 7 and 8, but 7 right now. Um, After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. A lot of descriptive terms there. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Now, this fourth beast is Rome. And we know the Roman iron legions went through and destroyed absolutely everything in their path. They conquered everything. They enslaved everything. They were just a force to be reckoned with. And they were two, they were represented by iron legs, basically, in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And it talks about the iron. Iron is exceedingly strong and it crushes everything. Rome. And notice that here, Daniel gives us a hint about it being Rome with those iron teeth. Those iron teeth that devour. Terrifying, dreadful, and iron teeth chewing up everything. And if you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, back in chapter 2, we had the legs of iron. And there were two legs, and we know that the uh, Roman Empire was eventually split into east and west, and how all that happened. But back in chapter 2, verse 40, just to remind you, it says, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these, all the ones that went before it. And so the same kind of imagery there, iron that crushes everything, exceedingly terrifying and strong and so forth. And this was the Roman Empire that devoured everything. Everyone mercilessly got crushed by iron. And we read about their their handling of of the Jews in in history. And also, uh, obviously, Jesus was um, subject to, to Rome when he was on earth as the Jews were conquered by them. But there's more. The end of verse 7, it says it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. This is the distinction that Daniel makes here. There's a lot more to say about it if you want to put a note in your Bible to go check out Revelation 13. But it was different than all the other beasts, and its deformity was was that it had ten horns. Ten horns. What do horns represent in Scripture? Authority, power, they represent kings. That's what it, that's what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision, vision had ten toes. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision of ten toes? The legs turned into ten toes that were mixed with iron and clay? Yeah. Daniel's vision has ten horns. Both describing the same thing. And we know from Daniel 2.44 and later in this chapter in verse 24 actually, that these horns do represent kings and their kingdoms. And so Rome, what it's saying is that Rome is going to basically go and devour things with its teeth, but basically it's going to become weak and brittle and fall apart, but eventually it will be revived into a ten-king kingdom 
where it will finish the job and stamp out everything with its feet, and it makes war against the saints, it goes and crushes all these things. We'll get into that a little later. But it tells us, Daniel 2.44 tells us that it will be in the days when those ten kings are around, those ten nations are reunited as a revived Roman Empire. In those days, right after that, guess who comes? Jesus Christ. The stone that was not cut by human hands comes and hits and becomes a mountain. And so the next thing on the world radar that we are looking for is that. Ten kings, somehow a revived Rome, put together. And when people saw the European Union come together, a lot of people looked at it and said, well, that's interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know. But I do know that there will be ten distinct kings under an old type of Roman um, empire, revived Roman empire. And it is then when God will send his son in return during those days and he will establish his eternal kingdom as he comes back to earth and crushes all the kingdoms of men and sets up his eternal kingdom under his son, a kingdom without, without end. And he will rule with a rod of iron in righteousness and justice. And we're longing for that day, amen? Not that we want to see everybody destroyed, but we want to see his kingdom come. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's dreams differ. They, they were very similar, but they, they differ. Nebuchadnezzar's dream stops at the ten nations, basically. It just says ten toes. It says there'll be ten toes. And it doesn't go any further. That was there. And now we loop back around in chapter 7 and it has ten horns, but we see that it's that idea of the ten nations gets further developed. There's something more happening there. This ten nations, which will be the final kingdom, that's what they're talking about, the final kingdom of man, a revived Rome. There's something that comes out of that, something that happens. Daniel goes into that in verse 8. He says, I considered the horns. This last piece is freaky looking. It's got ten horns. And behold, there came up among them another little horn. Uh, it's it's an, another horn, a little one. Before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And so out of the ten, there's one that's distinct that rises among them. And three others are taken out by this one king. And he rises up to power. And it says, before which the three uh, of the first horns were plucked up by its roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And so out of this final kingdom of ten nations, there comes a little horn, a distinct ruler, a finer ruler who will subdue three of the other rulers of these ten nations, and he will rise to power. And so Daniel's vision introduces us to a ruler who is best known to us as the Antichrist. And so Daniel's dream is just world history up into the point where the world becomes history. That's what's going on. Starting with Babylon, then with Greece, and then 
obviously, uh, sorry, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, which fizzed out in the 1400s, and then a revived Rome, and a powerful ruler that comes up out of that revived Rome, who's the Antichrist, and that is when the Great Tribulation happens in Revelation chapter 4 through 19 starts to unfold, or 5 through 19. Pretty powerful. Daniel says of him there at the end of verse 8, And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In other words, the leader has a mouth. The leader has eyes. He is human. But make no mistake, he's a beast. He is a beast. Revelation calls him the beast, Revelation 13. And in his arrogance, he uses his mouth to speak blasphemies against God, and he deceives the nations. And he would deceive the elect if it were possible. And he gets them to admire him and to worship him. And and he is so powerful, so satanically empowered, that the world looks at him and says, who can stand against the beast? He is that powerful, that dynamic, and he's got a false prophet with him. And an unholy trinity is operating. You've got Satan, and you've got basically the incarnation, so to speak, of Satan in the beast, and you've got a false prophet kind of mimicking the Holy Spirit, doing the religious side of things. And that's the world scene. A world leader, a world dictator, a world religion ruled by with such destructive force and he is going to go and destroy everything he'll make war against the saints those who aren't i believe the church is going to be raptured out of here but then there'll be a revival through the jews because god's going to operate through the jews again and the gospel will be proclaimed people will come to the lord and they will be martyred during that time he will kill them all but they're going to have a special blessing from god we'll talk about that but Revelation 13, 5 through 6 says, And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And so this, you think it's bad now. You think the church is like, you know, oh no, you can't sing. You ain't seen nothing coming. This is going to be open slaughter. Now, Daniel wraps back around to describe the Antichrist after this next section. So I'm not going to go to great depth today. We're going to get into Thessalonians. We're going to get into all these other things when we wrap back around to it in, in, in January, okay? He introduces us to the Antichrist, and we're going to go back to that. It's important to note that the kingdoms of man come to a final kingdom with a final ruler. That's, that's what we need to know. That's what all of, of, of is going on. COVID, everything that's going on is all working in God's plan to funnel us down to this moment. We look at it and we go, ah, oh, you know, we're, we're so myopic, but God is actually allowing things to happen on earth. Jesus said that some of the signs that are the beginnings of those things is that nation will rise against nation, um, basically kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be plagues. 
that are going on, and we have experienced all these things rapidly in 100 years. There's locusts flying around the earth eating everything up right now. There's a lot of stuff going on in various places. Worldwide events are happening. And he says those are just the beginning of birth pains. That's just the Braxton Hicks of of the matter. And so, Daniel, the the kingdom is going to come down to a final kingdom, and it could be forming as we speak. We don't know. And it's coming down to a final ruler that will arise out of that kingdom. And you've got to keep in mind that Rome had a very vast territory. There's going to be some kind of coalition there that happens, and someone is going to rise out of there. And this ruler ruled by this final king, is going to make war against the saints. He's going to make war against, try to make war against God. He's going to try to overthrow it and establish his kingdom as man has always done. And that's what we're waiting for here on earth. But I believe the church will be taken out before that happens. And we'll get into all the eschatology here, but Basically, when the man of lawlessness is revealed, I think the church is taken out and then God's wrath is poured out on the earth for basically seven years, but the last three and a half. There's a lot there. We'll get to it. But at the end of that, at the end of that, guess who's coming back? Jesus Christ. And we're going to be with him. Those of you who believe in the Lord Jesus as your, Christ, as your Lord and Savior, those who have been born again, those who, are, who evidence that in your life, who are true believers, you're coming back with him. Jude speaks of that. In verse 9 through 12 is really interesting because the kingdom of God is going to be established. He's coming back. Verse 9 through 12, and as I looked, the thrones were placed. And so he jumps up from the the worldly scene of this leader that's going to rise and all the bad things that are happening. He jumps up to heaven. And this is what we need to focus on. And as I looked, the thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. So quickly, Daniel's panning us up. And we need to pan up these days. Amen? We're looking from the scene of the Antichrist to the throne room of heaven. And the ancient of days took his seat. In other words, the Father is on the throne. Do you know that? The one who sets up kings and takes them down, he hasn't left his place. He's on the throne. And and God is briefly described by Daniel here in in just magnificent, quick vignette. His clothing was white as snow. This speaks of the absolute purity of God. His purity radiates from him. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. And quite often when you talk about white hair, you talk about wisdom, hopefully. Hopefully. But with God, it's absolutely true. White clothes, purity and wisdom. All of his purity and all of his wisdom radiating from his very being. Remember when Jesus was transfigured? On the Mount of Transfiguration and, and Peter saw 
him? What did Jesus look like? And they started using laundry terms because they ran out of vocabulary. It's like they got them really white. It was just radiating. And the idea is it's just light. An inapproachable light is radiating from God's very being. That's who he is. Revelation chapter 1 describes seven attributes, and you start of this being, and, and you start reading them, and, and then at the end of it, it talks about his hair was white, and his, and his clothes were white, and his eyes were fire, and it talks about a sword coming out of his mouth, and he says, I was him who was dead and was alive. The same words of description that are used to describe the Father are used to describe the Son. The son. <clears throat> like Father, like Son, they are both God. But within the relationship of the Godhead, the Father is in authority and the Son is submitted to Him and the Holy Spirit is there, all co-equals. And I think our family is supposed to be the same. Not that we're unequal, we, we all have roles. We've lost that in our culture. And the purpose of one is not to demean the other, but to lift one up. As the Father does everything to glorify the Son. The Son does everything to glorify the Father in His submission. And the Holy Spirit testifies of the Son. Beautiful relationship there. But here it's speaking of God and His purity and His wisdom. In His throne was fiery flames. Fire almost always in Scripture represents judgment. How many of you like to talk about the God who judges? I like the. I don't like to hear about that very much. Do you? We always want to talk about the, you know, the happy, lighthearted, fluffy, you know, flannel graph Jesus and all this stuff. No, God is is actually all love, and He's perfect in justice. He is all those at once. And to dismiss part of His character is to minimize another. And so here he sits in purity and wisdom on a throne of fire. Wow. Talk about refining. And its wheels were burning. This kind of reminds me of Ezekiel. And people go, oh, it's spaceships. I don't know what it is. It's not spaceships. There's something about his throne that is just... The wheels might have been the circles of rainbows around it. They're trying to describe whatever it is. And notice what happens in verse 10. As the king of, or he's called the ancient of days, I mean the one who is so old you can't even number his days. He's eternal. He's on his throne in his wisdom and his purity and there's fire on his throne. And guess what's going to happen to do, happen? The fire represents judgment. That's what's about to happen. Verse 10, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So there's fire that comes from his throne. And notice, they're adding like a little context here. Daniel's adding a context about who's around. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. I don't do math, but I know that's a lot. And that's an idea for you, that these are angels who are around him, and they are called the fiery ones. They're 
flames of fire. They're ministering spirits and they radiate. When people see angels in their unchanged form, they fall down to worship them because they are so magnificent, because they radiate the holiness of God. They're his messengers. John tried to worship one twice in Revelation, and they kept having to tell him, get up and don't worship me, worship, worship God. But a stream of fire comes out before him, and thousands and thousands, it's just innumerable angels are worshiping him, standing before him, innumerable angels serving him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is the courtroom, the throne room of God. And so this is God on his throne as judge of the universe, and the court is in session, and humanity is on trial. And the books were open. God doesn't judge willy-nilly. He writes everything down. You will be judged according to what you have done. I will be judged according to what we have done. I know we like to say that, no, we won't. But yes, we will. You can't get out of it. And the fact is that those who are in Christ Jesus have abandoned their old life and they walk in righteousness. And the works, we now, the, the, the works that we now walk in are not our salvation. They're proof of our salvation. And when God opens that book, <clears throat> what he is looking for when he judges is the blood of the lamb. Because <laughs> there's no way in our bad works that we could ever get to heaven or walking enough people across the street or whatever it is, our, our good works. We are not saved by works, we're saved by grace, but that grace saves us to good works. Does that make sense, if, if I could put it that way? And when he, when he opens that book, he is looking for the blood of the Lamb, and that is the good work he is looking for that gets us saved from the judgment of God. But from that point forward, it's proven in how we live. And so I would say, that we come before God in judgment based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's verified by how we live. You say you have faith? I'll show you my works. Faith without what is dead. Faith without works is dead. So the books are open. God judges. He keeps records. Revelation 20 says one day will be opened and the world will stand before him in judgment, basically. And we will hopefully, we will, in Christ, we're judged according to his work on the cross. Amen. We're saved by grace. But in the beast, this, this final ruler, as he is seeking to take authority and try to set up his own kingdom, he could not defy God. He could not escape his own fate. His day was sealed. And that's what's happening here. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. I looked because of the great words of the, what the Antichrist was speaking. He was uttering blasphemies and all this type of stuff and all the things that were going on that we'll get into later. And as I looked, the beast was what? He was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is an idiom to say his days were numbered. He was done. As for the rest of the beasts, 
Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the beast boasted great words, but he was killed and his body was destroyed, was given to be burned with fire. What does that mean? Revelation 19.20 tells us that the beast was captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire. Those seem like contradictions, but they're just two ways of describing the same thing. His days on earth was done, but he was thrown alive into the lake of fire. In other words, it's not as if when you die, you don't experience pain anymore. Your soul is taken, or actually you'll be given a body, I guess, and you'll be thrown into hell. And that's what happened here. He was defeated, he died, and he was thrown into hell where he was conscious, alive, and was burning with fire. And we find out that Satan is bound for a thousand years when that happens. And then we jump forward in Revelation, and a thousand years later, he's still in the, the beast is still in hell. A thousand years later. It's crazy stuff. Hell is real. And verse 12 says that the rest of the beast, that is those that preceded the beast, they lost their dominion. They lost their kingdoms, as Daniel described, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. In other words, although those kingdoms were conquered, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and Rome, they, were, they lived on through the beast, so to speak, but they eventually came to an end because they, the kingdom of man culminates in the beast, in the final world kingdom, and the final world um, religion, and the final world order, and it comes to an end. That's basically what he says, destroyed when, he, when Christ returns. And really the beast and all the kingdoms of men and all their false religion and, and rebellion are rolled into one. And we see this in Revelation 13, too, where the beast, that final ruler, is described. Now check this out, Revelation 13, 2. It says, and the beast that I saw, and this is describing the beast that was unlike any other in Daniel's vision. He's saying he couldn't, Daniel couldn't describe it, but in Revelation, John is. He says, and the beast that I saw was unlike any other thing. He says, it was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. It was all those kingdoms wrapped up into one. And that's the idea, is the Antichrist is the culmination of rebellious man's rule. And so the beast embodies all those previous kingdoms and is actually empowered by Satan himself, who deceived the first Adam and usurped his authority. But that rebellious rule of man comes to an end the final kingdom and the final ruler are judged and the beast is thrown into the lake of fire and then the son rules. And verse 13 says, And I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The ancient of days is the father, the son of man is the son. And here the kingdom is given from the father to the son. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the stone that was not cut by human hands is given the authority to come and crush the kingdoms of man and establish the kingdom of God on earth. And that's when all hell breaks loose literally, when God pours out his wrath on the earth for those 
last three and a half years of that seven years. And then the Lord comes and touches down and takes over a kingdom that will never end. And notice he says, all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. And that's what the church is. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's people from all languages, tribes, and nations. The human race redeemed. Those who believe in Christ and have submitted to him. So all people, all people will serve him. And his dominion will never end. We just had an election and dominion ended. And we'll have another one and a dominion will end. Yeah, I mean, if the Lord doesn't come back. The dominion of Christ will never end, church. It won't stop. It won't die. It can't be overthrown. It can't decay. And neither will those who are his. <laughs> Amen? Now, the rest of the chapter, which you're going to get into in January, Daniel seeks clarity about all this. He tells us that, but now he's going to go back and go, now, what does all this mean? I'm looking at all these animals and things. What does that mean? He's going to go in and explain in more depth. We'll roll back, talk about the Antichrist in more depth, and obviously um, the Lord's return and the kingdom of Christ and kind of lay out a timeline and all that kind of stuff. And so we'll return there in January. But until then, we'll be taking a break, as I said, from Daniel and um, uh, next week, Pastor Arthur will be preaching, um, and then we'll move into Christmas season. And I, and I want to focus on the wise men and, and, and their gifts, the three gifts of the wise men, which is interesting because the wise men are tied to Daniel and Babylon. Um, but we'll, I'll save that for then. But it just, it just as, a, as, a, as a church, that we could gather together and, and, and kind of sing the songs and and just worship the Lord in the midst of everything that's going on. He is so good. He is so faithful. And it's good to be together, church. It's good to be together and to love one another. Yeah, be responsible. Put on your mask, spread out. Definitely. But really, to love one another as Christ loved you. Lay down your life. And so I want to encourage you in this season, yes, submit to the government. But at the same time, obey the Lord Jesus. If he calls you to love you will obey him in that, and however he's calling you to do that. And so our focus in this time is going to be on the king that's coming. Amen? The king that's coming. He is definitely the king. He's got some gold. He's definitely human. He got some, uh, you know, some frankincense and myrrh, and he also died for us. Um, and so we're going to focus on his death and his humanity and his, and his, and his royalty as we get into the Christmas season. But verse 15, real quickly, of Daniel chapter 7 says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. <laughs> no kidding. So Daniel's going to be anxious and alarmed for a couple more weeks here until we get back to him. But I hope you aren't. Read ahead. Enjoy the Lord. Enjoy, enjoy his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. There's a lot here. We see that kingdom has come and kingdom has gone, just as you said, and we are waiting for the next thing to happen. But until then, Lord, you give us commands in your scriptures. You, you give us things that you've called us to do, to be busy about your kingdom. That our eyes would be upon you, walking in the good works that you've prepared for us before the foundations of the world, not 
being preoccupied with our worldly possessions and such, but being preoccupied with your kingdom. Lord, like Pastor Arthur preached last week, may we consider our ways in these times. This has been a great time to consider our ways. Teach us to follow you in this day and age and not to go along with the rest of the pull of the world. It's empty, it's vanity, and it comes to an end. So may we be storing up treasures in heaven during this season. Cleanse us, Lord. Prepare us, Lord, for your, the day that you call us home. May we walk in holiness. May we have purity, your purity. Walk in your purity. May we have wisdom in this day and age. And may we walk circumspect in, in the light that you are going to bring fire on this world. Lord, we don't want to be among those who are shaken. We want to be among the unshakable. Thank you for your son. And may we walk worthy of the calling that we've received. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.